welcome to Charity Chat. I'm your host, Rachel Conroy. The issues raised in this week's episode may be distressing or triggering for some of our listeners, as we sat down with Lizzie Amelion, Head of Major Gifts at Teach First, to discuss sexual harassment in philanthropic giving. We explore the topics of donor dominance and the professionalism of fundraising as a discipline and what roles these can play in fostering environments in which sexual harassment can take place within major giving. Lizzie also gives helpful advice to managers, individuals and us as a sector for what we can do to be preventing inappropriate behaviour from occurring. This episode of Charity Chat has been brought to you by our platinum sponsor, Work for Good. Work for Good is a fundraising platform helping businesses raise funds for charities through their sales. The platform makes the legal agreement needed for businesses to fundraise themselves quick and simple, saving charities time and resource and enabling them to raise more unrestricted income. Pop to workforgood.co.uk to learn more and book a free demo. Here is Lizzie. I'm very happy today to be joined by Lizzie Emilion, Head of Major Gifts um, at Teach First, who's here to shine more of a light on sexual harassment in philanthropic giving. Um, How are you today, Lizzie? I'm really well, thanks. Uh, Nice to meet you, Rachel. You too. Um, for the for the viewers um, and listeners, we've just had a little bit of a chat beforehand about all things um, fundraising in the sector. Um, so I'm very pleased to be joined by an expert in the sector here. And I think Lizzie will have some very interesting things to say to us today. So if you don't mind, Lizzie, um, if we could kick off with a bit about your background and how did this lead to you exploring the topic of sexual harassment in philanthropic giving as part of your recent master's? Yeah, of course. Um, So I've been in fundraising around about 13 years now, um, and most of that's been in major giving. Um, So I guess through a lot of that, I found myself in quite a few unique circumstances. I think fundraisers um, will all relate to that, um, where I was going to donors' houses, um, in their cars, to their workplaces. I've been in supermarkets with donors. Um, And as a young sort of 23-year-old when you join, it kind of comes across as part of the job. Um, and you get on with it and it's just what you do but um, as I moved through my career and I started to manage um, other fundraisers I realized that some of these situations weren't appropriate um, really and that you know 67% of the the fundraising workforce is women Um, 54% of those are under 40 um, and we're meeting usually older wealthy men more stereotypically and yeah, they just didn't seem appropriate anymore. And when I looked for support when incidents did happen or people disclosed things to me, I realised that charities also couldn't provide support or didn't have any um, strategies in place to manage those kind of situations. And the more I reflected on it, the more I realised it was a bit of a problem and something I thought was isolated that was just on me as a fundraiser. Um, so I wanted to know a bit more. And as I did a bit more digging, I came across Ruby Bailey Pratt's article in Civil Society. And I realised that people had been trying to shine a bit of a light on this, um, although anecdotally. Um, so when I started my master's a couple of years ago in philanthropy um, at the University of Kent, I decided this was a topic I wanted to explore for my dissertation. And when I looked into it, there was no academic research that existed really it was all wow blogs all gray literature yeah so it was really it was quite shocking because the, the statistics are out there the surveys have been done you know so many fundraisers experienced this um and so it's something I really wanted to just contribute to and, and change and, and find solutions for charities as well because I think a lot of charities feel paralyzed 
um, and aren't sure what they can do about it. So that's sort of how I got into it. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, Lizzie, your your voice and like you said, your kind of research is something that's clearly needed as is something that hasn't even been looked at outside of those kind of blogs and articles before that. Um for those listeners who might be unaware, can you explain a bit what is meant by donor dominance? Yeah, so donor dominance is um, probably something that I would imagine every fundraiser has felt since the beginning of charities, if I'm honest. Um, But the term actually was coined by an academic called William Closey in 2003. um, And he described it as a bit of an imbalance of power um, between the donor and the charity. And usually it's circumstances where donors might use their influence and their donation to leverage benefits that they're not uh, entitled to. to push charities in to do work that is not part of their mission um, because they're specifically interested in it or to make and influence decisions or get access to beneficiaries or staff. Um, and then we've probably all experienced that at some point um, in our fundraising lives. But where it's really come into a bit of a different area, I guess, is where it's being linked to inappropriate behaviour by donors. So donors who use it to uh, exert power over fundraisers, whether that be to make decisions, like I said, or in inappropriate ways such as sexual harassment. Um, so it's really being used quite a lot now. And actually, Rogari Fundraising Think Tank are doing a lot of work looking at donor dominance um, in the sector as well. So it's worth having a look at that if you're interested in the topic. From both your personal experience and and those that you've spoken to, you, you mentioned um, there, you know, that when you became a manager, but I also know that you did, you um, conducted some interviews as part of your um, academic research as well. How does sexual harassment present itself from donors towards fundraisers? Um, I think just in a variety of ways, if I'm honest, in the terms of how it presents itself, I've spoken to fundraisers who've experienced the extreme side of of that, and that's physical attacks or physical uh, advances. Um, I've had women I've interviewed who were followed back to their offices after events, um, or I've had donors corner them in restaurants or events or in cars or things like that. Um, And then it goes right up to the sort of inappropriate comments sort of slight touching that might make you feel uncomfortable um inappropriate questioning that happens quite a lot um inappropriate communication so I've spoken to women who where donors have struck up a relationship through whatsapp um or personal communication channels that aren't necessarily related to work um and just that general feeling of uncomfortableness like when you're in somebody's personal space and they're making you feel very uncomfortable so it really spans a range a range of, of things from from the physical right to the sort of less I guess less serious but no less um, important um, experiences that fundraisers have. Um, I would say it's quite nuanced. Um, what makes one person feel uncomfortable doesn't necessarily make another feel uncomfortable which is why it's a very difficult subject as is it is in the real world outside of fundraising a very difficult subject to police um, and which is probably why I think charities find it quite hard to um, support women Mm. in particular but people who have experienced this as fundraisers um where this happens a lot something that came out was events being one of the biggest culprits um for spaces that this happens in where alcohol served donors and particularly major giving i think is probably where it happens most because fundraising is seen as um 
a profession by the people who do it, but the donors see it as a bit of a hobby. It's outside of their work. It's outside of what they do for a professional life a lot of the time. Um, so a lot of those meetings happen in personal spaces outside of work hours. So fundraisers are expected to conduct what they would see as professional meetings, but in donors' personal spaces. So donors often misconstrue or take advantage of those situations where there isn't a professional setting or people around um, to stop that. So I think um, other ways it happens, like I said, it happens over communication channels. You know, donors often will uh, communicate with you via message. I've I've communicated with donors over WhatsApp by text message. It depends on your charity and how they're set up. You know, most charities can't afford mobile phones for all their fundraisers. So they are using your personal phone a lot of the time. Um, and even as we've moved online, those worlds have become very blurred. So um, again, that can be misconstrued or taken advantage of. And I think the other one is that it's just something that is happening at a low level that mirrors what's happening in the real world. We know mm. that women experience this on a daily basis. And I talk about women specifically. My research looked at women, but I know this happens to men and non-binary fundraisers as well. Um, but it mirrors very much what's happening in the real world um, to women and to these people uh, where it's just unpleased and people yeah. take advantage of situations. Yeah. And I think you're totally right, Lizzie. Like it's, yeah, it's unfortunately something that happens in lots of different scenarios, but from what you're saying here and, you know, my, my contacts with um, major giving in particular, like you said, fundraisers is there's a, that line is not only blurred between us being in a professional space and them not, but also kind of us being made to feel like we're their friends and ask them about their personal lives. You know, we're told that, that's how to build rapport. That's how yep. to kind of start that. So yep. those lines are, are very grey from the start as well um, for yep. all parties involved. Oh, absolutely. You know, fundraisers are taught that we are donor centric. The donor comes first. We must pander to the donor almost. And, and if you couple that with a target on your head, I've been in jobs where I've had a million pound target on my head every year. Um, and you're young and you want to prove yourself. You will put up with a lot. I think, to realise those targets, to move up. Um, and I think we're just not very good, women in particular, I think, are just not very good at um, speaking up for ourselves sometimes, um, particularly when we're trying to compete in a professional environment. And we put up with a lot because we also want to do good. You know, some of the charities that we work for are very small. £10,000 is a lot of money. And what's an inappropriate hand when £10,000 could really help a beneficiary? I think a lot of women and fundraisers feel that way. Yeah. And so when... they are caught up in this is sort of place that they put up with things because it's going to do ultimately good for the charity. touched a little bit on it but what is currently done being done by charities and bodies to address this issue um not to I don't want to be too negative about this no I think we need to be real, honest yeah there's some real shining lights here but but not very much um and I don't think it's not that charities don't want to I think it's that they're in a very um unusual position one we've already touched on it it's very difficult to police nuanced situations I think physical attacks and physical things are much easier to distinguish that that is wrong and there could be a police matter and there are other ways of of reporting that and and getting that dealt with but 
but when it becomes to the sort of more nuanced, the less obvious harassment that takes place, one, it goes very much unreported. And, and the women I spoke to in my research in particular, all of them at one point or another said, oh, it wasn't that bad. I know people who've had it worse. They play it down. They sort of don't want to be seen as disrupting anything. And mainly because they know that if they report it, a charity will remove them from the situation, not the donor. And I think that is one of the biggest issues because ultimately it sends a message that money is more important. Um, and while it may seem that they're trying to look after the well-being of the fundraiser, that message is reinforced time and time again. And many of the women I spoke to said that. They said it's quite obvious after a while that you will just be taken off that account and it will be given to somebody else. And ultimately the person that loses out is you because professionally that account might have been really important um, or might make you look like a good fundraiser or act like a good fundraiser or give you an opportunity to do something more experienced to move up in the in the professional world and and you're being taken off that because of a donor's behavior um yeah. and charities you know I've recently been in this situation at a charity where I wanted to report the behavior of a of a donor there are no policies or there certainly wasn't policies at the charity I was at that allowed for that they're all internal policies so there's a lot of policies for internal sexual harassment there's a lot of policies for employee employer problems but very little for third party people that you work with and and um, there is some really interesting research in the sector about, about what we call boundary spanners which is what fundraisers are where they don't sit within an organization in the traditional way they sit on the outside of it so it's very difficult then to manage that relationship they build with donors because they don't sit in a traditional structure or workplace. So I would say not a lot is happening. Charities aren't doing enough, but there are some that are doing are doing bits and pieces. So the Red Cross, for example, um, did a big piece of where it surveyed its fundraisers and has now been creating toolkits and training and reporting structures internally to support fundraisers when they report things like this. But they are in a priv privileged position in that they have a diverse income, they're big enough to say no to donors um, where the problem really lies is in charities that don't have diverse income that rely on one or two donors giving one or two six-figure gifts that really keep them afloat and they feel mm. like they can't turn those gifts down if something happens um, so I would say definitely not enough yeah and Lizzie I think you hit on a good point and we know that um, you know a lot of our listeners come from those, like you said, those you know, smaller charities who don't have as big an income income pool. Um, so I think it'd be really satisfying for them to hear that this isn't just an issue potentially that they're facing alone. And whilst it's not good, it's still always nice to hear what other people are doing and that you're not alone in this situation as well, um, to give them the confidence to potentially do something about that as well. Absolutely. I think that's absolutely right. And I think that's where we could be doing more is, is as a sector mm. you know charities that operate in silo a lot of the time but donors are a part of a very tiny pool major donors in particular in the UK is a very small group of people who know each other not all of them but generally they're known um, at a certain level and the charity sector could be like that as well it could use mm. its collective voice to support those charities where it is difficult to stand up to somebody who's giving you a lot of money based on kind of what you know in your research is there anything specific that more that can be done in this area do you think yeah definitely um I always relate it to I used to be a governor for a primary school and I always relate this story to something I think the charity sector could take on is that um the school had a code of conduct for for children 
Mm -hmm. It had a code of conduct for staff, but it was frequently experiencing problems with parents in the playground. And that was quite difficult because parents didn't come under their control, I guess, or their sort of um, structure. But what they did was put in place a code of conduct that they expected parents to sign up to. And it really, really helped change behaviour. And I really think there's something that charities could be looking at is when we sign donors up to give us a gift, it's not just about what we provide them in return. It's how we expect them to act as donors to our charity. And I think that could really, really help Um them to understand what the charity's expectations are of them as well in terms of their behavior and how they operate. Um, I think that there is a lot of work to be done with charities to learn to say no to mm. money sometimes. We're notoriously bad at it, we know. Um, obviously, for obvious reasons, we want our beneficiaries to get as much as they can. Um, but I think we do need to learn to say no. And it's about firming up that due diligence process to extend beyond just we won't take this money because the money comes from a bad place, but we won't take this money because the donor behaves in a way that we don't want to be associated with. Um, and I think that is fair. And that's something the sector could do as a whole to strengthen that, that process. Um, and then the last thing I think is, is about fundraising as a profession. I think that we're often referred to as an emerging profession, but we're not treated as professionals. Mm. We're not like lawyers. We're not like solicitors. We're not like those other professions, even though the CIOF has moved slightly in a direction, you know, by becoming a chartered institute, we are not a profession yet. And Regari, again, the think tank are doing a little bit of work looking at how to professionalize fundraising. And I think that will help a lot because at the moment, particularly in the major giving space, we're often viewed as, as salespeople at the most, um, middlemen at the very least, you know, we're not treated like experts often a lot of the time. We're not treated like people who know what they're talking about. But I think it will change, but there is more needs to be done as a sector to, to help move it along quicker. Yeah, I think there's some really important things there, Lizzie, you've picked out. Like, yeah, that, that bigger piece around the professionalisation is something that very much sits at a body level and as you said charities coming together and as working as a sector but for those who you know maybe want to do something in the interim love that example of the code of conduct from the school that you're a governor of I think that's a really nice practical thing that people can look into on an individual charity basis as well something to take away What advice would you give to both fundraisers and managers who are experiencing inappropriate comments or advances from donors? Yeah, I think this this is a tricky one because there's lots of advice I can give. It's how you can actually, it's whether you can actually um, take that advice on. It can be quite difficult, as we've already highlighted. Charities are not necessarily set up um, for people to be able to openly talk about or report what's happening. But I think that's a big a big piece of it is to keep reporting what's happening, keep talking about it. I think managers in particular and internal staff can think about the culture that they're creating within charities and make sure that it's known that this kind of thing isn't just part of the job and that somebody's well-being is more important than the income that you're generating. And that's thinking about, are you driving fundraisers to the point where money is the only thing that they're thinking about? Um, and if so, is that appropriate? Is that helping? You know, there are ways to be ambitious and hit targets without compromising well-being of staff and without reinforcing that message that that is the be all and end all. Um, because a healthy income stream um, is one where 
fundraisers are empowered as well as the donors so you know it's something that is about the culture of the charity as a whole I also think that um, charities can set standards of working um, and professionalize themselves a little bit Um, senior staff in particular I would say CEO level director level can make sure that they're referring to their fundraisers as professionals, that they're bringing them in as experts. So they're outlining that to donors when they meet them. In particular, you know, I'm talking very specifically about major giving, but this will trickle down, I think, all all the way through to other other forms of giving as well. But, you know, often I think that reinforced message of, you know, you're speaking to a fundraising professional who knows what they're talking about um, is really, really important. And then internal reporting structures through HR and policies, I think, is something that can be looked at, um, creating policies that deal with third party complaints, um, it, making sure that fundraisers know where to go and who to go to, to report instances. And then managers also know what to do, because often I find it stops at manager level. There are some mm. brilliant managers who are very open, who are willing to listen, but they then feel powerless because there's nowhere to go from there to take these complaints or to deal with these complaints. Um, and I think it really needs to go right up to CEO level. Um, and I'm very fortunate, for example, at Teach First, we have a brilliant CEO, Russell Hobby, who reached out to me once I'd written the article I'd wrote um, for Fundraising Magazine to ask me what we could be doing more about. And I think it's about that. It's about CEOs taking responsibility and saying, OK, this is my culture. This is my charity. What can I be doing to support yeah. fundraisers? Um, and now, like I said, I think there's just the other things that we've already talked about, really, is the code of conduct, the due diligence, diversifying income, supporting charities to diversify their income, I think is really important. Um, and the open and honest culture, tr- trusting your staff to be professional and that they aren't just making complaints for the sake of it, that these are really important um, things that they're saying and that if donors are behaving badly, you're willing to say no and walk away from them. Yes, we're focusing and your obviously background is within major gifts specifically in that stream of giving. But as someone who um, specialises in corporate, you know, there's some crossover there. I know some Mm -hmm. colleagues as well, even at community fundraising level where there are there have been inappropriate incidents as well. So I don't think, unfortunately, it's not, you know just in in major giving it it does span um different disciplines of fundraising so i think it's important for us all to work together as you said and it's Mm -hmm. not just a siloed issue um, and that's the only way we can make a difference as well yeah and learn from each other in terms you know income streams are also can be quite siloed internally in, in charities and you know like you said while it's happening in other income streams there are parts of corporate fundraising for example that are professional and where fundraisers are treated slightly differently, mm. particularly because they're coming into contact with CSR professionals rather than individuals giving away their own money. So there are lessons to be learned internally as well um, between income streams, I think. And it's about talking about those experiences and equipping fundraisers to um, know how fundraising operates outside of their own income stream so that they can bring in parts of that that might help them professionalise their own um their own circumstances for example um the other thing is just basic you know something that we brought in at the lspcc for example was going places in pairs making sure Mm. that you're meeting people in public there are really basic things we can be doing and we know women again in particular are already doing these things to keep themselves safe um and they're basic and the onus shouldn't be on fundraisers and women but we should creating cultures where it's expected that you don't go anywhere alone particularly after hours, you're not going to somebody's personal space um, on your own, things like that. So. Yeah, 
yeah, definitely. And even if you're at a smaller charity where you may be the sole major giver fundraiser, it's, you know, important to have a colleague, even if they're not in your discipline there mm-hmm. and, exactly. and making sure that you've had that, they're aware and you've had that open conversation beforehand as well. I yeah. think that's really important. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Lizzie. Like some really important stuff that we've, uh, you know, that I think the sector needs to hear. And I know you've been doing a great job of shining a light and we just need more of this information out there. We've discussed some topics that some listeners, you know, may um, find triggering. So um, where can our listeners gain support if they've been affected by sexual harassment at work? Yeah, absolutely. So there's obviously um, a lot of national helplines they can contact. The Samaritans, there's victim support, rape crisis England and Wales, um, the Equality and Human Rights Commission sexual harassment helpline as well. Um, and all those he does can be found online. Um, but I would also say find a trusted person within your organisation, disclose it as soon as possible, make sure other people know um, about your instances. And then the CIOF, also um, has partnered with which I don't think many people know about actually it's partnered with the talk to spot app which is an app where you can report incidents um, spanning a huge range of subjects but sexual harassment being one of them um, anonymously um, and that will go to the CIOF to investigate and they will pick that up and deal with that so I would definitely recommend that as well Um, but the biggest takeaway really is is don't say silent it's not part of your job it's not supposed to happen Um, so just say something uh, to somebody um people want to listen and it's happening more than you think it is yeah thank you so much lizzie All right thanks so much a big thank you to lizzie for continuing to bring this important topic to the fore within the charity sector A core theme that ran through our conversation was the professionalism of the fundraiser juxtaposed with the personal giving of an individual. As fundraisers, we are often encouraged to be donor-centric and build friendly rapport with major donors. Unfortunately, if this perceived friendliness leads to sexual harassment, it is usually the female fundraiser who is removed from the situation rather than the donor's financial contribution not being accepted. It is vitally important that leaders refer to their fundraisers as professionals to ensure that it is known that they are experts in this field. Whilst the biggest changes will have to come from sector-wide collaboration, if you want to get your organisation to a place where you are able to handle any complaints of inappropriate donor behaviour, it may be worth considering Lizzie's suggestion of a code of conduct for givers. This will enable them to understand what is expected of them. It can also foster an environment whereby it will be easier for fundraisers to say no to gifts if it's felt that a donor has wrongly exerted their dominance along the way. Lizzie made a lot of statements over the course of our discussion, but one that really stuck with me was, what's an appropriate hand when £10,000 could really help a beneficiary? I think a lot of female fundraisers feel this way. It is a sentiment that has just made me profoundly sad and shows that there are a number of people out there who've been made to feel that money is more important than them as an individual. I think we can all agree that we can do better for ourselves, for others and for the sector. So thank you for listening to Charity Chat. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode, there are a number of national helplines such as Samaritans or Rape Crisis England and Wales that you can reach out to. You can also report in a, inappropriate behaviour anonymously as the CIOF have partnered with the Talk to Spot app. 
I would love to hear your thoughts on this episode. You can find us on Twitter or LinkedIn to share your thoughts or email us on charitychatpodcast at gmail.com. Please also do like and subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode and share with any colleagues or friends who may be interested. It's just left me to thank our corporate sponsors. This episode of Charity Chat has been brought to you by our platinum sponsor, Work for Good. Work for Good is a fundraising platform helping businesses raise funds for charities through their sales. The platform makes the legal agreement needed for businesses to fundraise from sales quick and simple, saving charities time and resource and enabling them to raise more unrestricted income. Magda Askamit for our beautiful website, check it out at charitychat.org.uk. Forrester Falls for playing throughout the show and playing us out now. I've been your host, Rachel Conroy. Thank you again for listening. Thank you.